A.J. Hansen had red hair, thick Coke bottle glasses that magnified two eyes peering in different directions, and a gangly, top-heavy awkwardness that made his dirty jeans flap around his ankles. He sat next to me in Mr. Van Hale's class. I played at A.J.'s house sometimes. He lived in a big, messy place in Byram, where the houses looked like barns, and you could get good pizza, but there was nowhere nice to swim. We played Ninja Gaiden, and he showed me his BB gun. My mom would never let me play with a gun. She would probably freak out just knowing that A.J. had one. His dad sat in a grubby armchair, staring dumbly at the TV like a dead person, while his mom tiptoed through the mess in a cotton frock, a huge body with a tiny voice. She called me honey. The smell really crowded you in, like dirty clothes and carpet and cheap microwavable food. But I liked A.J., I didn't care that people picked on him because he was poor. Lots of the kids who picked on him were poorer. After the Pledge of Allegiance, a lady came into our class with sachets of purple fluoride mouthwash. She showed us how to hold them up the right way and gently rip the top from left to right, then put the contents in our mouths without swallowing. She said, Swish the liquid around your mouth now, and I'll count to thirty. I watched the other kids with mouths full of the weird purple stuff. A.J. looked funny as he swished it around his mouth. His jaw worked up and down. A purple streak dribbled down his chin. We spat it all back into the sachets. The lady showed us how to fold the top so nothing spilled out, then walked around the class with a garbage bag. Some other kids also caught A.J. dribbling, like Casey Williams, who pointed and laughed and called him a retard. A.J. scribbled on his desk with the eraser end of a pencil. Amanda Papandreou walked past my desk, and without thinking, I tripped her. I put my foot out, and she stumbled. Luckily, she didn't fall. Just yesterday, Mr. Van Hale told us that Amanda had eye surgery, and it was important that she didn't get involved in any horseplay, because her eye could actually fall out. I knew this. She had a bandaged eye, but still, I stuck my foot out. If you judge them by adult standards, fifth graders are terrible people. The recess bell rang, and we all ran into the hallway and down the stairs to the cafeteria. Kids who ate the fastest got out to the playground first. I wolfed down my food from the styrofoam tray and threw it in the garbage, then ran outside to join the games. A bunch of kids stood against the high brick wall at the end of a square of blacktop. They threw around a yellow tennis ball. The biggest kids chose the game and who could play, while the smaller kids, like me, stood against the wall, squirming under the scrutiny. We played a game called Butts Up. It starts with one player throwing the ball at the wall, and other players trying to catch it. If a player catches the ball before it bounces off the ground once, the thrower has to run to the wall before the ball hits it again. If you can't get there in time, or if you fumble the ball while trying to catch it, you've got to stand against the wall with your butt sticking out, and the other players throw the ball at you from behind. They throw it as hard as they can. The tennis ball shot back and forth while kids scrambled around the blacktop. The ball made a meaty sound every time it connected with a boy's body. Girls stood at the sidelines and watched, sometimes shouting at people or laughing when someone winced with the pain of being pelted. The girls shouted, jumping up and down, Fierce fingers pointing out the choicest violence of the game.
and butts up an audience is really important. I didn't like playing butts up, so I left the game and walked along the brick wall towards the jungle gym. Casey Williams threw the ball at me. It hit me in the face. The pain wasn't too bad on account of the shock, but the shock was worse anyway, and I had to try really hard not to cry. I felt my face contorting, but turned towards the wall so nobody could see, and held in the tears. I even pretended to pick up something off the ground and look really closely at it as a distraction, and it seemed to work. Then Casey shouted something to AJ, and everybody said, Ooh, like there was going to be a fight. I looked across the blacktop, where everybody stopped playing, and spotted AJ. He wouldn't look back at me. I heard him, Casey Williams said. He said your mom was a fat whore. All eyes fixed on me. AJ stared at the ground, and everybody ooed and nudged him towards me. A circle formed around us, and the hands of people I couldn't see were pushing us towards each other. AJ staggered limply over to me, guided by the hands. I guess I did the same. I tried to catch AJ's eye, but he wouldn't look at me, so I scanned the surrounding faces. Teeth and eyes and shrill voices calling for a fight. Then AJ jumped on me and knocked me down, pinning me to the ground. He bared down with his knees on my shoulders, tussling my shirt collar. His face snarled, full of hate, but I don't know what he saw. I struggled to get out from under him and shouted, Get off me! Get the hell off me! I didn't do anything. He didn't get off, but kept pulling at my shirt, and even though he looked like he hated me, I could tell that he didn't want to hit me. He had to look like he hated me, and maybe right then he did hate me, because everybody was watching. And because everybody was watching, I had to hate him too. I didn't think about it. Something just changed, and I hated him. So I got an arm loose and punched him in the face. His glasses flew off, and I thought how funny it was to see him without his glasses because his eyes looked so much smaller. He squinted because I hit him square in the face, and then he rolled off and I stood up. Kids shouted and laughed and patted me on the back because there's nothing better than a punch in the face when it's not your fist and it's not your face. I tried not to cry. Kids slapped their thighs and laughed. When Iraq invaded Kuwait in August 1990, the TV went crazy. As a kid, you got the impression that Saddam Hussein was this textbook bad guy from a Superman comic or something. In September, we started middle school, and some kids had t-shirts with a cartoon of Saddam being anally penetrated by a missile and the caption, This Scud's for You, referencing a beer commercial of the time. Over Christmas vacation, the war drums were beating. My friend George got a book for Christmas with pictures of all the different planes and ships the U.S. military planned to use in a war with Iraq. There were planes so big, it took about 30 miles to turn around completely, and aircraft carriers where F-14s took off and landed after flying in formations above big open desert spaces where they could shoot rockets from so high up people probably couldn't even see them. The USS Missouri could shoot Tomahawk missiles with deadly accuracy, from a hundred miles away. Apache helicopters were so good at hiding from view and shooting Hellfire missiles at targets in close to medium range that some generals said the war could be won maybe without putting any feet on the ground. 
There were smart bombs that you could launch from a neighboring country and land on a dime, and cluster bombs that scattered smaller explosives around the area they fell in, and daisy cutters that pulverized everything in a hundred-yard vicinity. There were also Patriot missiles that blew up enemy rockets in midair, acting as a kind of umbrella for areas the U.S. didn't want to be attacked, like friendly Gulf neighbors. The B-2 stealth bomber plane was the coolest of them all. It used secret technology and appeared in George's book like an origami spaceship. We wanted so badly to touch one, all that black steel and weird angles. The book said it was undetectable radar and so quiet that you wouldn't know it was there until it was close enough to blow you up. George even had Operation Desert Storm cards that were made by the baseball card company Topps. These were like baseball cards, but with all the different people and weaponry involved in the war. President Bush, the commander-in-chief, was the top card, but you could get ones with the other guys, and there were cards for the Great Plains and battleships too. The design of these cards matched the new desert pattern fatigues of the Army's uniform. George and I knew pretty much everything 11-year-olds could know about the forces amassed in the Persian Gulf. Operation Desert Storm was on its way, and we couldn't wait. The 16th of January, 1991, was a school night. My mom cooked linguine with clams sautéed in a garlic and white wine sauce. After dinner, we watched TV. The U.S. had begun its aerial bombardment of the enemy forces in Kuwait and Iraq. A correspondent told the news anchor that he was in Baghdad and it was quiet, but then there were flashes and the sound of explosions in the background, and you knew they were bombing. I watched the TV every night after dinner, watched the flashes and heard the explosions, and then they started showing footage of planes taking off and landing from aircraft carriers, real planes that were doing the real fighting. It was the first time you could see all the action as it happened. The first time you could watch bombs hitting their targets. The news showed footage of battleships launching tomahawks and then showed the spot where the missile hit in Kuwait or Iraq or wherever. They showed a grainy screen in black and white and you saw a little light fly from off screen into the target and then the screen was bleached out white. When the screen cleared again, you could see the target in pieces, or on fire, or just a mess you couldn't make sense of. You could see the same footage from the Apache helicopters. The light, the explosion, and then little human shapes emerging from the wreckage with their hands up in surrender. You could see the footage from the fighter jets and high-altitude bombers. See the little square screen with a building just discernible. Then a flash, and the building was gone, like it had disappeared under an ink stain. You could see the roads running through the desert with miles of tangled metal wreckage. You could see the black plumes of smoke dotted around the flat desert landscape with little orange flames like campfires at their source where oil wells had been torched. Never before could you watch a war in real time. The news stations ran constant coverage and the military could demonstrate the accuracy of their weapons in detail. I watched every night, until one night I went to bed early because I didn't feel well. I closed the door, but I could hear the TV from the next room. My mom came in to see if I was okay, and I started crying. She asked what was wrong, but I couldn't answer. 
She sat on the bed and ran her fingers through my hair and told me that sometimes people did bad things and needed to be stopped by force. My hands felt cold, like they didn't belong to me, like they were somebody else's cold hands. My mother said that sometimes doing good meant hurting other people. Reborn Christ is nothing to write home about Maybe if he had kept the money lenders out There might be some kind of urgency to the show To love my neighbour like I love exonerating doubts Was blinded now that I can See the townsfolk laugh at me Cause I don't look like them You haven't cured their blindness yet Oh, welcome back to the Spaghetti for Brains podcast This is Ben, I'm joined by Norm Hello, I am Norm And I am not the son of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States <laughs> He's lying Uh we're here to or am I? <laughs> yeah, and we're uh, we're here with another episode, and we're going to talk about uh, war, and we're going to talk about Joe Biden and his administration, what it's shaping up to look like, and whether uh, he's likely or not, uh, or how likely he is to go to war. One of the things that I always thought was interesting about the the campaign was just uh, not just this campaign the. The campaign for the primaries um, was all of the people who are supporting Biden are all these old neocons who've uh, since Trump has been uh, has been president. The Republicans, there's like a certain type of Republican, basically the neoconservatives who've really like moved uh, in a large mass to being uh, never Trump conservatives who now support the Democrats like David Frum and uh, all those kinds of people. David Frum, who the famously, link- huh? The Lincoln Project. The Lincoln really Project embodies them. Perfect, perfect, exactly. And David Frum is an interesting one because he wrote the uh, George W. Bush's 2002 inaugural speech, in which he uh, unveiled his concept of the axis of evil, and uh, the whole "it's you're either with us or against us" doctrine. So, one of the things that I wanted to start with was uh, because we we just heard that story that I wrote back in 2016, before the election, actually. Uh, uh, It's a story about the Gulf War. And one of the things that I was thinking about when I wrote it was actually uh, an essay called The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction by Walter Benjamin, or Benjamin, whatever. I'm just going to call him Walter Benjamin because I can't be bothered pronouncing it like I'm German because I'm not German. And... uh, The essay talks about a lot of different things. He talks about aura. He talks about art and the reproduction of art. But one of the things that I found the most interesting, and that in the end was the thing that drove me to write this story, was in the epilogue. It's just a very short two pages at the very end of the essay, where he kind of just muses a bit on the differences between fascism and communism. And as it was written in 1936, obviously, it was very apt and I think that it's still apt. The times that we live in now, 
there's a lot uh, of crossover. And I just wanted to kind of share like a little bit of this of this uh, essay. There's a couple of a couple of bits of it, little uh, uh, segments that I think are particularly interesting. Um, so just the beginning of the epilogue, I'm going to read it to you real quick. The growing proletarianization of modern man and the increasing formation of masses are two aspects of the same process. Fascism attempts to organize the newly created proletarian masses without affecting the property structure which the masses strive to eliminate. Fascism sees its salvation in giving these masses not their right, but instead a chance to express themselves. The masses have a right to change property relations. Fascism seeks to give them an expression while preserving property. The logical result of fascism is the introduction of aesthetics into political life. Fascism, sorry, the violation of the masses whom fascism, with its Führer cult, forces to their knees, has its counterpart in the violation of an apparatus which is pressed into the production of ritual values. All efforts to render politics aesthetic culminate in one thing, war. War and war only can set a goal for mass movements on the largest scale while respecting the traditional property system. So the thing that's cool about this is, I guess he's, he's pointing out like some really core uh, like Marxist ideas about uh, technology and development and the way that uh, the ruling class uses that uh, and, and has to contend with that in, in the real world, because obviously, uh, setting aside the fact that he's talking specifically about fascism, and probably even more specifically about German fascism, you know, he's talking about the Nazis mostly, he was a, a German Jew uh, who had had to leave Germany. But one of the things that's interesting is that I, the way that technology develops is that it makes things more automated. It makes things easier for human beings to live. That's like the driving force of technology is to, is to increase productivity, is to make things easier to produce. We make machines that in themselves make more machines and that's supposed to make production easier, which in a fairer world would make life easier for everybody. But the cool thing that he's pointing out here, uh, <clears throat> it's actually really terrible, but it's cool that he's like uh, formulating it like this, is that when you get to a stage where technology could be making life easier for people and, and it would be like disturbing property relations, you know, like the, the, the fact that we have a ruling class and then the rest of us schmucks down here at the bottom doing all of the work. It's got to, it's got to be used somehow. And one of the things that he says there, he, sa he talks about uh, the masses and uh, he's using that word, I think, a little bit ironically as well, you know, because there's a, it's like Raymond Williams said, there are no masses. There's only ways of looking at people as masses. And he's talking about us, really. And our right is to reorganize the property relations. It's our right. In fact, and it's an imperative. And the people who seek to control us, who in, in these really extreme terms, he's talking about fascists. But I think that it really holds true for a lot of different types of organizations of society. I mean, the, the stage of capitalism that we're in really does resemble fascism in this respect, at least. I'm speaking in the narrowest sense. I don't think that it's like correct 
to describe the world that we live in as fascist, really. But this this uh, organization of society that we live in really does resemble fascism in that respect, in that, you know, it sees its salvation in giving these masses, which is us, not their right, but a ch instead a chance to express themselves and express ourselves through this kind of mass movement, mass support, uh, and, you know, uh, it's a violation what they do. The logical result of fascism is the introduction of aesthetics into political life. And that's one of the things that in the story I was talking about with uh, turning war into something that's like a spectacle, turning war into something that we're engaged in on an aesthetic level. And to do that, they've got to create uh, an aesthetics for politics. They press politics into this aesthetic format. And, uh, and, he's, and as Benjamin says in this, you know, all efforts to do that results in one thing, and that's war. Because war is the only thing that can set a goal for mass movements on the largest scale while respecting the traditional property system. And it's crazy because, like, the thing that worries me about Joe Biden is that he's a hawk. I mean, this is not uh, some sort of, uh, like, unique insight that I'm having. I mean, it's a well-known fact. He was uh, a supporter of many different, uh, many different, like, he supported the increasing of the military budget back in the in the 80s under Reagan. He supported uh, increasing the military budget even when it wasn't his party's policy. He also was uh, the, the number one proponent in the Democratic Party of the, uh, in favor of the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And from uh, he's also probably one of the forces behind the, 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 the prolonged uh, like aerial bombardment, the, the drone strikes under Obama. And I, I can imagine that even though those things have maintained quietly in the background under Trump, I could see an escalation of something like that. And so, um, I don't know. I just wonder what you think about this, Norm. Like, what, what do you think, what do you think is going to happen now that we've got, I mean, especially like what's, what's shaping up in this administration with his picks and stuff? Well, I mean, Biden wasn't actually the biggest hawk in the Democratic Party uh, at the time of the Iraq war. But what's critically important is that he was the most active and vocal one in actually whipping support and getting his party to vote for this war. So, you know, uh, that's what troubles me more is that, you know, he, he comes from it from a more middle ground of like, let's save the people of Iraq sort of message and whatnot. Uh, not from a, you're with us, you're either with us or against this sort of standpoint, but from that standpoint, then does the active work of promoting the, the war effort, uh, even if it's, you know, as dishonest as the Iraq war was. But yeah, very much. He has shown, obviously, no indication of changing. Um, and he maintains that sort of, same sort of uh, stance, yeah, that's very open to engagement, very uh, open to maintaining U.S. imperial hegemony, just like his sort of uh, modern <laughs> contemporary mentor Barack Obama was. Right, right. Uh, and it's something that's often not looked at because they don't actively engage in the sort of spectacle of war that we're are going to talk to around, uh, you know, with the, with the conflicts in Iraq that Republicans uh, oversaw, but we'll probably also get to how 
while people don't associate Clinton or Obama with starting either of these conflicts, they very much maintained them. Yeah. And Clinton bombed Iraq. I mean, I, I meant to look up the actual figures, but if I recall correctly, it's roughly breaks down to almost weekly, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, the sanctions against Iraq for, for his entire time there were devastated and then obama you have the 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 drone campaign and the just the extrajudicial assassinations aside like he did just continue the the bombardment of our targets and the ongoing war on terror that stemmed out of the war in iraq and became uh a war against um isis which he founded uh no (laughs) sorry i just love that that uh for for a couple of years there, Trump uh, maintained that Obama was the founder of ISIS, yeah, uh, and was... of course he meant it metaphorically. But knowing Trump and his supporters and the way that he dog whistles, yeah. like I increasingly wonder how much that was meant to actually make people, th- yeah, certain yeah, yeah. people think that Obama was the founder of ISIS. Al <laughs> uh, Akbar. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to uh, have a third term. So that I could extend the caliphate <laughs> to uh, Main Street in Iowa. <laughs> we'll uh, take those corn and soy fields and uh, start growing uh, saffron and olives. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I wanted to ask you Yeah, so well. I don't see a difference from this, from uh, Joe Biden, at least... And like Obama, you know, they they gave him the Nobel Peace Prize as soon as he came into office. He certainly was meant to usher in a new era of of peace and cooperation and all the other, you know, fantastical sort of uh, progressive change that Obama was meant to embody when we elected him uh, that he never lived up to. And like, of course, he never made those promises, really. If you actually look back at his political career and campaign, like, he never actually promised to be that sort of uh, agent of change, like, internationally or even with a lot of American policies. He was one of the more conservative people, policy-wise, that was running. He was certainly not to the left of Hillary Clinton, for example. Mm. Uh, but there was always the opportunity for him to to embody that to become right. the person that, that that the public sort of thought that he was in those hope posters and the sort of energy that was there uh when he got elected on election night I was in New York City I was walking through Union Square Union Square was filled it was absolutely filled with people like under 30 just cheering uh, grabbing the megaphone and just cheering and saying something and everyone cheers. And I did it. I went to the megaphone and I grabbed it and I was like, you know, Bobby Blue, yes, we can. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's a, that's like, one of the know, things. I love that we're out here. Yeah. And then, uh, and I have this on video somewhere. I probably don't, but like, I then said like, and like, I love this energy and like, 
we've got to be out here tomorrow and the next day and the next day to like make sure that like we get the world we want to see or something like that and that was the first thing I said that people didn't cheer yeah. <laughs> and I immediately was like I immediately was like come on guys like we gotta keep this energy going the kid tonight can't be the end of this right. and like nothing and I was like oh man and I just passed over yeah, the yeah, yeah. megaphone and I just never forgot that it was like this motherfucker has been elected this dude hasn't been president for an hour and i'm already disappointed in in our reaction to him yeah. so yeah he never lived up to it he but never changed and I, if he's not going to change like i certainly don't have faith that joe biden is going to change no no also too i think that that's that that feeds back interestingly into what uh walter benjamin's talking about in this with the the aesthetics of obama's campaign the posters the way that uh, he used these catchwords, hope and change, because he's doing the same thing that Benjamin's talking about fascism doing, which is aestheticizing politics, you know, adding kind of like, it's like the, the adding this like artistic dimension to it, pressing art into the service of, uh, or, of pol or, or even, you know, pressing politics into the service of art in a way, you know, where he's, he's creating an image and like, like art, it's a, it's just an image that stands on its own. That's open to interpretation and that was by design. I think that Obama's whole strategy was to be all things to all people. He was vague enough that he uh, enticed you to believe what you wanted to believe about him. And that's something that's uh, incredibly dangerous, really, when you think about it now in retrospect, with all that's happened since Obama's first election, you think the fact that people are so willing to believe what they want to believe about people and about things and about people in power particularly, it's really scary because you can tell someone, I mean, you and I have talked about this before, even on this podcast about like family members and friends, when you try to, to say something critical about a, a Democrat or someone they like, whether they're Democrat or otherwise. And there, there's always this gulf between the reality of how that person has always voted on like the Senate floor or the Congress floor or what they've done, what they've campaigned for and what and what you th that person thinks the, the politician or, or activist or whoever has done. There's always a gulf there between what people uh, want to believe about them and what is true about them. And that and that mm -hmm. gulf is where they're able to operate, really. And one of the things that's uh, that's that's crazy about that, like like Benjamin points out, is that it, it, it means that that that. That means that the people with the most sophisticated communications technology are able to use these technologies that would otherwise be helping people to stay informed, that would otherwise be helping people to communicate with each other and organize as a group, as like a block, a power block or a voting block or an activist group or anything like that, or even just to stay informed, to just to have the knowledge to be informed about making decisions when they go to like vote or if they go to join a union or not, or if they try to organize their workplace. And these technologies are then turned against these people to whip up, uh, you know, uh, support for things that are actually di diametrically opposed to their interests. And that's, that's one of the things that I think mm -hmm. is interesting. And when you, when you like graft that onto, uh, you know, organized violence, I think that that's where there's something really unique to be said about the United States. And that's one of the things that I wanted to, to talk to you about. I wanted to ask your opinion about this because it's something that I think about a lot. I feel like the United States growing up there and then leaving when I was like a young adult, you know, and having lived most of my adult life over here. It's interesting to me when I reflect back on the experiences I had growing up 
America's relationship to violence and not even just violence in its immediacy, but like America's relationship, like the average American's relationship to the spectacle of violence is really like something unique, I think. It's something unique and uh, it's not something that, that I've ever experienced uh, elsewhere, or if I have, not to the same degree. Um, and that, that's, always been, that's always been something that I was aware of in a sort of uh, intuitive way without ever being able to intellectualize it, which is the thing that spurred me on to write that story. Like in the first experience I had of it, where I had any kind of like inkling in my conscious mind of it was uh, in the Gulf War in uh, 1991, early 91, I was a kid. I was like 10 or 11 years old. And one of the things that I uh, realized is that everybody was on board with this thing. And if you asked anybody, you know, why is it happening? No one could give you like a good answer. Well, certainly not an answer that was simple enough for an 11 year old to understand. And I know that obviously politics is complicated, but still at the end of the day, if you say to someone, you know, what, what, what is this about? Why is this happening? I remember, you know, just being told, oh, you know, like, this is a bad guy. Saddam Hussein is a bad guy and we got to stop him. No one ever explained, like, why, like, who are we to stop him? Like, why is it us that has to stop him? Like, what else is in it? You know, and why has he done what he's done? And no one ever uh, knew or explained to me that, like, we were the ones who armed Saddam with all of these weapons that made it possible for him to invade Kuwait in 1990 and that we were the ones who gave him the the, the gas that he used uh, in the war with Iran in the 80s and later on on the Kurds after the Gulf War. Um, and I think that it, it doesn't just... We were also the ones that plunged him into debt and then uh, told him to alleviate that debt and kind yeah. of uh, implied that it was okay if he did so by invading Kuwait. Right, exactly, exactly, yeah. And And another thing that's interesting about all that is that all of that stuff, that background, everything that fills in the story that makes it more uh, explainable, you know, it makes it just make sense. You're like, why do these things happen? They don't, the, the framing of like good versus evil, where we're always the good guys, creates this dynamic where when you like view violence, I guess, on the television, I guess one of the effects that it has is that it just makes you go like, well... I mean, it must be, it must be because you, you just start assuming that whoever were bombing were bombing because they must have done something really bad. They must just yeah. be bad, you know, and, that, and that's, that to me is, uh, and then that, that feeds down, doesn't it? Where people think the same thing with like, with cops and stuff, you know, you watch a show called cops and it's just like these cops arresting and terrorizing these communities and it's yeah. like, well, they must have done something wrong. And when I explain to people, like I have, I have friends who are not really like politicized at all. And they have just like a kind of average Joe understanding of politics and 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 uh, and the ethics of of like the the police state and all that kind of thing. And you say to them like, oh, you know, in the United States, they have like, you know, the highest incarcerated population in the world, both absolutely and relatively. Uh, and, and people say, oh yeah, but you know, and you're like, and and eighty five percent of them are like not white or whatever. And 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 I think something like seventy five or more percent of those are nonviolent like drug offenders and people go like yeah but they they did the crime so they're doing the time and you, you know what i mean like they they did something wrong and it's like meanwhile uh in in the city i live in purdue pharma and the sackler family just pled guilty to pushing oxycontin in various sorts of 
unlawful ways and basically being responsible for the opioid epidemic, which is killing people by droves here. So their multi-billion dollar uh, pharmaceutical company, Purdue Pharma, is, is being dissolved and taken over by the government. They have to pay a few tens of b billions of dollars in uh, fines, nothing compared to the like hundreds of billions of dollars they probably made by pushing OxyContin for so long. Uh, and the Sackler family is, themselves, who ran the company, are not facing any sort of criminal punishment for it. Uh, and this was on the news, and my mom was like, taken back. She was like, wait a minute, they're not going to jail for it? Like, I thought every other news channel was talking about how this big case is broken and they've admitted to this and like all these billions of dollars of fines and but watching democracy now they also mention that like oh and the Sackler family themselves are not being <laughs> uh, convicted of any crimes for this uh and I immediately was like no, no 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 they're not but like you know I'm sure their friend's daughter is going to jail for having a joint or something you know <laughs> or but exactly. yeah so so, like, the whole do, do the crime, do the time thing, like, that that comes down even closer to uh, what we're talking about with all this police violence. Uh, and a lot of people are like, oh, well, you wouldn't be killed resisting arrest if you weren't resisting arrest right, or something right, like right, that. Right, right, and right. it's like, yeah. But either way, it, it touches upon this notion of that you were saying, like your mother said when you are asking about the war, is basically that there are... Your notion of good and evil that you understand and what's right and wrong and ethics and what you should and shouldn't do to people, sometimes people violate those things so much that it's okay for us to violate it in return mm. in, 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 in our retribution towards them. Mm. And, like, that's a fundamental thing that, you know, children obviously have a hard time comprehending, and it's difficult for someone to sort of explain that, that there is this sort of notion of like proportional justice or whatever you might want to call it, uh, which is this sort of, you know, obviously just its own sort of moral quandary about like retribution and whatnot. Right. But this sort of larger scale global thing of we need to engage in war against someone because they have transgressed so much, uh, that we need to engage in all the things that war entails, all the destruction that will come with that because they're such a bad actor. Mm, mm. Um, and that becomes so much on the one hand, more difficult when the, the actor is not clearly bad, like a Hitler or something mm, like that, right. or like the Japanese just bombed Pearl Harbor or something like that. Uh, and you need to make the case. But at the same time, it's aided by the fact that we now have all of these methods of media. And with the Iraq War, for the first time, we had television and live television. Not the Iraq War, the, uh, the, the Gulf War. The, like, yeah, no, the Gulf yeah, War. Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's be clear about the distinction. Yeah. The Persian Gulf, Desert Storm, Desert Shield activities. Right, right. Uh, we had live TV there. Um, and so we were able to make the case entirely differently. And I want to come touch upon the way that kind of transpired and i don't know if we should do that first or I if i should. should address your point about violence being a sort of american uniqueness because i first of all absolutely agree with you 
about it being a unique thing of the America we grew up in. Mm. But now, after what we've wrought through our lifetimes, it's no longer a unique thing. And that is most clearly embodied if you watch an ISIS video. Right. You know? Right. Uh, All of that violence and all of that uh, production to make a dishonest point in inciting you to a violent retribution has now been co-opted by the very people that we were using it against. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We let the genie but out But we of the should bottle. touch upon the actual structure of it because this was really the blueprint for what became the Iraq War and kind of every conflict we have had since and probably will have for a long yeah, time. Yeah, I want to I want to kind of like enumerate some of the different developments in in uh, of of like the spectacle of war in our lifetimes. And I think it might be yeah. worth mentioning that obviously the very first kind of quote-unquote televised war uh, that the United States waged was Vietnam. I mean, they weren't actually showing uh, like battles on TV, live on TV or anything like that, but yeah. we were seeing, you know, mangled bodies and people being burned and we saw like the aftermath of napalm bombings and things like that. And it actually had a devastatingly negative effect on people's opinion of the war. And Very much. Right. It was the one of the reasons that it was like the largest anti-war movement history had ever seen right. was because the people were for the first time really seeing some of the effects of war. Right. But it wasn't live enough imagery and it wasn't involved enough and active enough over there already uh, to sort of shape the narrative before anything even happened. Right, right, right. <laughs> and also one of the interesting things about Vietnam is that I guess it was also one of the last kind of conventional wars that the United States fought, really, the you know, where you have like troops on the ground like that fighting in uh, someone else's home turf, you know, going into the jungle, fighting these people on their own turf in a way, just with guns, you know, you've got these guys with guns, with planes overhead. I mean, they don't do that anymore, especially since even Vietnam itself was what they called like, a, that was when they created it the idea. It was police of, action. Sorry? It was a police action. Right, yeah, exactly. We're, we, were, we weren't there to fight a war. Right. We were there to protect our advisors. Right, right, <laughs> right. And, they, and that's when they developed the whole idea of counterinsurgency and this idea of insurgency that precedes it, right? Like this. And, and, but even then, like it still was more or less on the ground in reality, like more or less a conventional war like the previous wars, like the Korean War or the Second World War. Uh, but, but the thing is, is that I feel like the... The people in power in Washington, they realized they that they needed to learn lessons from Vietnam and that if they ever waged a war again, that they would need to do it in a completely different way. And one of the things they had trial runs when, you know, uh, Reagan bombed uh, Granada yeah. and then, you know, when he when he went after Noriega and everything. And But they were highly televised as well. But the thing yeah. about the thing is, here's here's where Benjamin is so interesting is because. He talks about technological development being this thing where it's like brought it to the next level and where all of these things, these technologies, live television, um, being able to uh, these things that have now been turned to surveillance and things like that. And even the ability to to fly planes uh, and and have accuracy in, in, in ballistics and things like that for using missiles that can land on a dime and everything. That's what they used to say. These these are all technologies that could be used to liberate people from drudgery it could be used to help people stop suffering it could be used to offset the worst effects of uh, climate catastrophes uh, you know and climate events but instead they realized mm. that they could use these technologies to make people kind of get their little you know uh 
like adrenaline and endorphin kicks, like looking at television by watching Iraq War the movie is what loads of the journalists and the theorists in like the early 90s were calling this. They were called it Iraq War the movie because you could literally, I mean, I remember watching television. I was 10 or 11 and you literally watched, they had cameras on the ends of bombs and they shot yeah. a bomb or a rocket at a target and you watched on a little like black and white or sort of green screen yeah. go closer and closer and closer to its target and then all of a sudden the screen just like whited out because it hit its yeah. target or you could watch the, the the planes f-15s and f-16s and stuff taking off from aircraft carriers in the gulf and going and flying in formations and going and dropping bombs and you never you never even saw these things in movies no exactly you know, because you need to drop a bomb in order to do it right. you know? <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> now yeah. we can do it with cgi and stuff but at the time i had never seen right a bomb go all the way down to the building you know, and then you assume it blew up or they had another angle where you would see the cloud. What you, of course, didn't see is the up-close destruction that it actually wrought and what that was that you were blowing right, up. Right, you right, know? exactly, exactly. Like whether or not it was actually, you know, a school or a, or a you know, a, 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 like I believe we blew up a baby formula factory or something like that accidentally, right? Uh, we did that in uh, in Somalia. That was one of the things uh-huh. that we did. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah in the 90s. But yeah, uh, very much. Uh, I agree. We, we had these images on TV and they kept talking about, I don't know if you remember, but they just would not stop equating the images to fireworks. That's something I distinctly remember is that everyone all of these journalists who were not very good at their jobs but were embedded over there a few miles away from the bombing would just point out the way that this night vision cameras staring at a city under bombardment looked and sounded like fireworks (laughs) and maybe that's why to me fireworks sound like bombs (laughs) (laughs) but uh (laughs) But I, I remember that, like, that was the analysis that they offered at the time. Uh, but absolutely, I remember the spectacle of it. And it, it it did, it was born from the Cold War sort of marketing of the conflicts that we were engaging in, which at the time were all these proxy wars with the Soviet Union. And I personally, my thesis is that almost every relevant piece of American history stems from the Cold War right now, but certainly this sort of propaganda, and we had achieved it really well during the Cold War. We obviously had a long time to do it, but the Soviet Union was the evil empire. Every movie, all you had to do to have Wheelan, all you had to do to have Wheelan in movie was... Make them be named Boris and talk like this. <laughs> Why always Boris? Why is always Boris? That was one of the, another genius thing about the wire. Yeah, yeah. We had just supported him in this war against Iran in the 1980s that had plunged him into debt. And uh, the price of oil was going down uh, because... Saudi Arabia and Kuwait were overproducing a lot of oil and they were driving down prices. And so Saddam's existing oil reserves were not enough to pay off all these massive debts that he had incurred from years of nearly a decade of war. 
um, buying weapons from us, you know, (laughs) just like, and so he, he was seeking out ways to, to recoup some of this money. And he had, for a long time, many had considered Kuwait to be part of Iraq as it was part of Iraq before, uh, the, the British drew it out of being part of Iraq because they wanted to have the most oil rich section be separate from this country. Right. Uh, and have a, a friendly sort of monarchy there. And so they invaded Iraq, and there was communication between Iraq and the United States that many feel was Iraq almost asking for permission to invade Kuwait yeah, exactly. and to make sure that, like, hey, like, we're going to do this thing. Uh, but, you know, of course, the administration says that they didn't give any sort of acknowledgement and that he went rogue when he invaded Kuwait to take this oil. Uh, And we, of course, decided that we're going to turn on him. And I'm sure the the economy not being very good didn't have, uh, had a little bit to do with it too. But we decided to engage in this effort uh, to paint him as this terrible evil that we needed to change the rules yeah, <laughs> of yeah. engagement around and, one of the, and engage in this awful thing that we all know of as war. Yeah. And one of the ways uh, that, they, so that they we do did that. that. Yeah. One of the ways that they paint it as well is like conversely, we've got to paint ourselves as the good guys in a new way. And one of the ways that they did that was not just showing, you know, pictures of guys before they set off like these like lily white, blue eyed men going off to fight wars, but also. This is and this is where Benjamin again is interesting, is he's talking about the technology and the aestheticization of politics being like in and of itself like a useful thing. And that's yeah. and like back to the, the the story I read, I talk in the story about those baseball cards. So Tops made these Desert Storm Coalition for Peace baseball cards, right? And I, I'm looking at some of them now. And one of them that's nuts to me, like some of the the earlier ones uh in the deck are are just fucking crazy because I'm looking at one now, right? It's called, it's basically what I'm looking at is a, a landscape portrait of, uh, of some planes flying against a beautiful, like red and pink sunset sky. Mm. And the, 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 the card is titled a quiet moment, you know? So they've like beautified these warplanes, yeah. like, Oh, it's a quiet moment. And on the back of this card is actually like a little history of the U S Marines And it says uh, the United States Marine Corps was organized in 1775 and is the oldest branch of the military service. Operating as a unit within the United States Navy, the Marine Corps consists of aviation, artillery, and infantry branches. Over the years, in many of our nation's conflicts, the U.S. Marines have served as a small independent army. Throughout their history, the Marines have always been known for their bravery and gallantry. And it's just crazy to me because it's like yeah. they're talking about like the, the the inception of the United States, this like mythical birth of the United States, you know, uh, and, and how the, the Marines were present for that. And they're like, it makes them seem like inextricably linked to the very birth of the United States. And they even use like language that kind of summons that feeling, that texture of uh, of, of mythic past, right, by using the word gallantry at the end there. Another one, that, another card is a picture, again, of like a setting sun and like a beautiful orangey setting sun background that's throwing this tank into silhouette. And the, the title of the card is Dawn in the Desert. 
And on the back, oh. they name the members of the uh, quote unquote coalition for peace, right? Which includes the fucking yeah. Soviet Union, Syria, the UK, Spain, and Turkey. But then another one, here's another thing, right? Because this is where it gets like pop culture, not like just beauty, but pop culture. So the very first card in the deck is George H.W. Bush, but they don't say his name on it. It's a picture of him. Again, it's not like in portrait. It's in landscape. And it's a picture of him. And it says the commander in chief. Yeah. And he's wearing a bomber jacket. And he's wearing a bomber jacket. And he's literally looking. I mean, he's literally looking exactly yeah. like John Wayne in this photograph. Yeah. I mean, it's fucking bonkers, man. Like he's looking steely eyed, squinting. Have, he could have hay in his mouth right now. He could have straw in literally, his mouth. Literally, he, he looks like they've airbrushed out a piece of straw in his mouth or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. And they and they gave you they give you like a little bio of him on the back. It says President George Bush, Commander in Chief. The United States president is the commander in chief of the armed forces. On January 16th, 1991, Operation Desert Shield turned to Desert Storm as the U.S. military, supported by 27 other countries of the NATO alliance, mobilized to protect the sovereignty of Kuwait. And the the crazy thing about this, right, is that these cards, all of them are either pictures of people, but mostly pictures of weapons like aircraft carriers or battleships or planes or specific rockets. And here, this is one of the things that I find interesting is that what Benjamin's talking about with this like uh, aestheticization of war, it creates, uh, if we think of aesthetics as including like storytelling really, which is something we've talked about before, right? Is they're telling a story of good and evil as we've established already. And one of the ways that they do that is they frame good in terms of being more developed, more technologically developed. And they frame evil as being like old fashioned and like inaccurate. And one of the ways they do that is by making American weapons seem like more ethical because they're more accurate and more technologically yeah. developed. And they make the, the Iraqi weapons seem like, like actually morally degraded by being yeah. lesser, like less accurate and everything. And here's an example. One of the cards that I'm looking at here. It's a, it's a card that depicts the Patriot missile. I don't know if anybody knows this, but a Patriot missile is a missile they use to like intercept other rockets in air. So if you're being attacked, if someone shoots a, like a rocket at you, you use the Patriot missile to like blow it up in midair. And the, the way that this, uh, this card looks, I'm, I'm going to describe what I'm seeing. It's predominantly beautiful blue fluffy clouds in a sky. And then in the, the foreground is some sort of like block of thing that they're firing the missile from and it's like a big explosion of orange fire with a very sleek looking uh, missile at like a perfect 45 degree angle launching but the majority of the picture is this like beautiful crystal blue sky and on the back of the card yeah. it describes the patriot missile as being 16.9 feet long and it has the ability to defend targets against any aerial threat, including high-performance aircraft and missiles such as Iraq's Scuds at all altitudes. Launched from the ground, the Patriot can reach a speed of approximately Mach 3 and is extremely efficient, even in very high temperatures, right? And then the, the, other, the other two that I wanted to describe here and talk about that I think are interesting, that really, like, that really kind of illustrate this way that they're framing it, is pictures of the the aforementioned Scud missiles, which are the ones that they used 
in Iraq. And the Scud was developed by the Soviet Union in like the 60s or something. They sold a bunch of them to the Iraqis. The Iraqis have these slightly older Scuds, right? And the photographs that they're using, again, they're not in landscape anymore. They're now in portrait. And they're literally in black and white. <laughs> I mean, they're not even yeah. like it's like, yeah, yeah. and they're not, and they're not like a, they're not standing yeah. out in front of like a beautiful fluffy cloud blue sky or they're anything like that. They're cut off in the frame. They're not even framed properly. They're not even, they're cut like literally the first one, Scud Missile A, is literally, it's, it's on the back of an old looking sad ass truck, like something you'd see in like someone's yard in like Kentucky or something. And it's, this is very much like a, like a political ad. Where it's like, I'm John Thompson, like, I will vote for this. And then it's like, Rick, Rick Stapleton, like, wants to cut this. And it, like, goes black and white and the image freezes and burn, you know. Yeah, precisely This is the exact same thing. It's like these picturesque picture of the Patriot missile firing, you know, you could see it almost soaring. You see the explosion of the rocket thing. Right, exactly. And then the Iraqi one is this black and white one. And I remember... At the time, them talking about how these often hit civilians oh, and let stuff me, because let me, they're let so me inaccurate. The let me read yeah, the yeah. back, yeah, because it says right. So Scud A. So so first of all, let me finish describing right because it's like they're they're loaded on the back of like trucks. They're not even able to fit in the frame, and they're also the truck is parked in like a field with some trees in the background. So it looks all like bushy. It looks like it's like from the fucking bumblefuck nowhere, right? And then it says about them, it says, so there's two of them, right? Scud A and Scud B. <laughs> they don't even have names. They're just A and B, right? So the SS-1 missile, known as the Scud, originally had a range of 186 miles, but was modified by the Iraqis to reach up to 400 miles. The longer reach decreases the firepower and accuracy of the Scud. And Scud B, it says, <laughs> the Iraqis refer to their Scuds as al-Hussein missiles and are accurate to only a thousand feet. These missiles can carry chemical weaponry and are vulnerable to interception by the U.S. Patriot missile. The Scud is, for the most part, inaccurate. A hit within one half mile of the target is considered acceptable. It's just like... Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, meanwhile... Me. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, this relationship that we have with collateral damage... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is what we call it when we accidentally blow up civilians and right, <laughs> hospitals right, and right, stuff. Right, right, uh, it, It's like you said, a much cleaner one. That's it. Uh, That's the word, clean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like a bunker buster bomb or something like that. We, we, we use the term bunker buster and not like damn near Hiroshima impact sort of <laughs> bomb, you know? <laughs> yeah. We use these quaint little Moab right, and right. like not like the notion that like this is something that will obliterate anyone who's anywhere near our target. Right, you know, exactly. we don't call it that, you know. We don't call it the let's hope that this is accurate because you'd hate for us to miss with how big the blast radius of this guy is. Right. Uh and while we're on the topic of like talking it up, we should also actually talk about uh what happened before the the war. But uh, first I'll, uh, since we're on this after part, I'll briefly mention one of my favorite jams, Voices That Care. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's a, we are the world, do they know it's Christmas type uh, celebrity <laughs> ensemble uh, charity song, which like used to be a big thing, but then kind of, went away for a long time, but kind of made a resurgence of people, modern people think of that uh, Imagine compilation that like Gal Gadot and some celebrities did at the beginning of that saved us all from the coronavirus many months ago. 
Um, I mean, I know or, that that uh, made me feel a lot better. Yeah, yeah. Or, and this touches upon what we were saying before, but the will I am, yes we can thing with Obama was like one of the closer things we had to it. Uh, where will I am, I think that was the ensemble. No, no, I'm wrong about that. Forget that. Uh, yeah, so there was this song, Voices That Care, that was put together, I think, independently by like David Foster and stuff like, and some people like that. Uh, I'm sure that they maybe had like a little being, bit of production assistance from the CIA. Yeah, maybe. I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> or, you know? yeah. or more specifically from Hill Naughton, the PR firm that the 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 uh, the Kingdom of Kuwait hired to sell this war to us. Right, yeah. Uh, which I'll get to in a second. But like, just to touch upon what we're saying here, this was, again, this was organized during and before the war. But by the time they actually put together all these artists to come together and they shot a video and made a little special on NBC, the war had been over, you know, for a little while. And they were, again, just selling the concept of us being the good guys yeah, and yeah. supporting the troops. This is where we began the whole, like, support the troops and the mantra. Yellow, the yellow where, ribbon on the trees and shit. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Where, it, it like, you just got to trust that they're doing the right thing. Um it doesn't it almost doesn't matter what they're doing you no. just got to support our boys once they're over there and i think the lyrics of this song are so telling in that respect because it basically says like i don't really understand what's going on with this virgin <laughs> golf thing but like i know that you guys must be doing the right thing so yeah you know like uh but it says it over and over again it's like lonely fear lights up the sky which is like their way of like uh, <laughs> of being poetic about the bombings. About, yeah, yeah, lonely exactly. fear lights yeah. up the sky. Hellfire but missiles. But then it says, yeah. can't help but wonder why you're so far away. You know, it's like, I don't know what's going on. There you had to take a stand in someone else's land. Life can be so strange. <laughs> and then he says, I wish we never had to choose. To either win or lose, that we could find a way. But I won't turn my back again, Your Honor, I'll defend. So hurry home till then. You know, the old hurry home troops, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like so interesting. It's like, I don't know what's going on. You know, I know you're out there taking a stand. I wish we didn't have to do this. I wish we never had to make a hard choice, you know, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you're there now, so I won't turn my back on you. Hurry home or whatever. And, uh, right. you know, at one point there's like, you know, all these things. And then, of course, they have a rap breakdown at one point. Will Smith comes on uh, and he's like, they're like, uh, they're like, uh, someone's singing. It's like, we pray to make the future bright. To make the wrong things right. And Will Smith comes in and goes, right or wrong, we're all praying you remain strong. That's why we're all here and singing along. And I just remember that forever. It never really impacted me. But like, right or wrong, we're all praying you remain strong. The PR campaign, because this is cannot be understated how important this was. The PR campaign that was run by us and the the Kuwaiti, uh, you know, it was an emirate. You know, it was just like a lot of these other monarchies, oil monarchies in the Middle East. It was a conservative, you know, uh, largely totalitarian monarchy. 
Like, people in Kuwait did not have a ton of freedoms, much like many of those oil emirates don't. And uh, the the royal family in charge was incredibly powerful and incredibly rich. And they, you know, obviously were not very happy mm. about getting their stuff taken. And so they hired an American PR firm uh, called Hill and Knowlton. And Hill and Knowlton is not just any firm. Hill and Knowlton is, you know, they have had their hands in a lot of stuff. Like in the, after the industrial revolution, they, uh, they represented, like industrial manufacturers, they in, in, in represented steel uh, when the, the workers, there was like a steel strike in 1952. They represented like uh, the dairy industry when farmers tried to strike, uh, the tobacco industry when farmers tried to strike. They represented in the 80s, they represented banks during the savings and loan scandal. They uh, represented banks during money laundering scandals. Uh, and then in the future, they went on to represent the Church of Scientology and then eventually stopped representing the Church of Scientology because they were anti-pharmaceuticals. And another one of their clients was Eli Lilly, who makes made Prozac and makes a lot more money than the Church of Scientology. So they went with their bigger client and dropped the Church of Scientology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so they were hired by the government of Kuwait to the tune of $10 million, which was a lot of money back then. Mm. Uh, and they began this PR campaign, which culminated with this, the Colin Powell of the Persian Gulf crisis uh, was this Kuwaiti girl. Mm. I believe her name was uh, Nayara, Nayara, something like that. Naraya, either way, it was just a, a first name to protect her anonymity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she testified uh, before a congressional committee about some of the atrocities that she had seen the Iraqi soldiers commit in Kuwait. And the one that stuck with me as a child and the one that the media reported on the most, the one that you heard repeated the most, mm. and the one that I think if you ask any American uh, is the thing that they would remember from that time is the taking the babies out of incubators in the Kuwaiti hospital. That's an image that was very powerful. It stuck yeah. with my child brain and a lot of people that the these heartless monsters went through this country they had just invaded and unplugged the incubators and put the babies who needed incubation on the floor to die. Mm. This was a lie. This was a fabrication, this story. And Nayara was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States. Love it. So, like... Classic move. This, yeah, yeah, and this was all organized and arranged by Hill and Knowlton. Like, this is not a classic move. This is the original. This is the precedent. Oh, that's what set. I mean. It's, it's become a classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's become a classic. <laughs> it's stairway. Move. But, like, <laughs> but, like, there's... You, you can't really understate how this one piece of evidence was used just like that vial of whatever Colin Powell was holding up <laughs> to the UN yeah. was like, this is the evidence these, and just like that vial, it was completely fabricated and they knew it was fabricated and they pushed it on us anyway. And Colin Powell would have never had the audacity to hold up that vial in front of the UN if they had not pushed this story successfully uh, in the lead up to this war. Yeah. Uh, 
and you know, it's uh, it's really remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> I want to I want to I want to fast forward a bit now because like I feel yeah. like everybody kind of knows like about yeah. this the 2003 Iraq War and and everything subsequently. And I want to fast forward to a specific moment in history, into the Obama years. Okay, and I want everybody to try to think of the moment when uh, Osama bin Laden was killed by forces that we deployed in Pakistan. They sent in uh, these like Navy SEALs and everything with the helicopters. They crashed one of the helicopters. They killed uh, a bunch of people they weren't meant to kill and they killed Osama bin Laden. And the image now, I think that the difference between 1991 and 2012, whenever it was that Osama was killed, I think it was 2012, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the difference between those those like 20 years or, you know, 25 years, 23 years, whatever, is now we've come to a point, like you said, like the the, the way that we frame it, the way that we the way that we receive images, the way that we look at it, it, it didn't work anymore. It's like you said earlier, it doesn't work anymore. We don't want to see the accuracy of weapons. We don't want to be seduced by the spectacle of violence in that way. You don't want to see Osama bin Laden shot in his pajamas jerking off to porn or whatever right, was right, the right. case. You know? Yanking like, his fucking <laughs> like dialysis machine or whatever yeah. around with him. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, but what, what you do see then, the way that they framed it in under Obama is telling, is that the, the image that I most closely associate with the killing of Osama bin Laden is that still photograph of all of uh, the cabinet you know, sitting around in the in the White House, just with like ba- almost biting their nails, looking at a watching screen, watching a laptop, right? Watching a laptop, yeah. And it's just like off screen, and all you can see is all of them looking kind of like uh, at the left of the image, just like with anticipation, waiting to see. And it's like, and you know that the payoff of that, you know, the cum shot of that fo- of that photo is, uh, we got him. You know what I mean? We got him. And then there were like fucking parades and shit. And that's the thing is that the spectacle of violence has like turned on itself now so that now we're like we're gazing at ourselves now. We want to see ourselves seeing this thing and and see this this, you know, like that that to me just like so perfectly like encapsulates what that spectacle of violence and our relationship to that spectacle of violence has become. It's become like so fucking insanely solipsistic. It's just like all about us. And, and what we are perceiving in our own heads and our own relationship to it. It's become, like, crazy. And I feel like, how could no one have seen... Like, now that I've got, like, eight years between me and that image, me and that event, of course Donald Trump, the most narcissistic man on the planet, was elected the, the president of the United States in 2016 because it's like the narcissism of that image is just so fucking crazy. You know, it's just everybody... Looking and the idea that like we're supposed to care, like you know that also we got him and all, like it was this massive, you know, yeah, like a, a, a triumph that we'd managed with all of our sophisticated technology to track down one fucking guy in Pakistan. The image that I remember clearly was, uh, uh Obama walking down, uh, you know, I ki- the I killed Bin Laden hallway. Which is, like, it was this weird shot. The podium was right in front of the camera. And he walked into the hallway from the end of the hallway. Yeah, yeah. So we saw him walk all the way towards right. the camera. He And he said his thing. And 
Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. <laughs> got him. <laughs> yeah, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Uh, Alo Akbar. Alo Akbar. Bismillah. Uh, Bismillah. And so, uh, no, you will not let me go. Let him go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, like, that's what the image became. You know, our buddy Obama came on TV and was like, don't worry, about, don't worry, folks. Your boy's got this. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Your boy took care of this. Now go back to your uh, go back to your business. Yeah. And that's what it was. It was. It was like, hey, just so you know, I got him. Go back to. Uh, I hear uh, new Game of Thrones season is starting soon. <laughs> go watch that Game of Thrones season two. Fiat uh... <laughs> ours, Periat Mundus. Let there be art. Even as the world perishes, says fascism, and, as Marinetti admits, expects war to supply the artistic gratification of a sense perception that has been changed by technology. This is evidently the consummation of art for art's sake. Mankind, which in Homer's time was an object of contemplation for the Olympian gods, now is one for itself. Its self-alienation has reached such a degree then it can experience its own destruction as an aesthetic pleasure of the first order. This is the situation of politics which fascism is rendering aesthetic. Communism responds by politicizing art. And so done it. It, it's certainly related to that, but we've got to touch upon this notion you gave of how violence is such an American thing and how we translated it through our art into this weapon to politicize and foment violence against others. And yes, you don't have to look far to know that America is uniquely violent. Look at our gun statistics, Mm. you know. Uh, Yes, we have more guns than anywhere else, but so does Australia. And they don't have nearly the gun violence that we do in America. Right. Uh, we are a violent, murderous culture internally, and it is externalized as well, and it may be because of the externalization. We've engaged in some sort of like open-ended war since the last real war that we engaged in, right. uh, World War II. We were in just this constant Cold War, and once that ended, we shifted it to other things like the drug war and then this sort of activity with Iraq that kind of never ended through the Clinton years and the sanctions and the bombings. And then, of course, that was kind of routinized with the with the war on terror, which is this open-ended thing that we've just been able to engage in ever since. And this was sort of an American creation, but it's clearly been co-opted by ISIS and by other actors. Obviously, just every actor now is capable of doing it because the technology, not only did we show them how to do it, but the technology has become so readily available to everyone. Anyone can produce high-quality video, even, Mm. uh, that, you know, can take advantage of all these sort of marketing uh, things that we engage in. Uh, And just to... I don't mean to move forward and then move back again, but the killing of Bin Laden also had its sort of cinematic moment a couple years later as well, which was the CIA involved, uh, what was that movie called? Oh, Zero yeah. Dark Thirty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
which then later was shown to kind of be misrepresenting. It was kind of misrepresenting a lot of the facts of the situation, even though the government was actually involved in consulting on it. You know? And so this is something I wanted to talk about from the beginning is that not only do these firms and the government and whatnot employ these sorts of strategies, but when you make it this sort of cultural argument and when you do pull in these sorts of artistic people, then you have the people like Catherine Bigelow, like David Foster with uh, Voices That Care and whatnot, that will start to produce this sort of propaganda for you without you need to needing to directly commission it. You know, I'm pretty sure that Zero Dark Thirty, even if the government was involved, it probably wasn't their idea. It was probably a Hollywood executive's idea, and they just got the government involved, and the government not only gave the green light, but were like, hey, we want to be involved with the story as well. And, like, if David Foster, you know, he was probably just like, hey, I'm a musician, you know, let's let me write a song. <laughs> You're a comedian. Tell us a joke. That's, <laughs> I wanna, I that's wanna, a fun improv game. I want to start to 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 like Sorry. move towards ending this now, this conversation. Yeah, yeah. And I want to I want to basically kind of think about how what this can tell us about the Biden administration and what to look forward to in the next four years, because I think that if we take what Benjamin is saying in in the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction at the end of it there, he's saying that obviously like technology develops to this degree where the property relations of society are, are threatened. The ruling class is threatened because things could be easier for us. So they have to move, they have to use it somehow to make it, uh, you know, useful in a way that maintains property relations relations. And that's war. Right. And that, that's one of the, I feel like that's one force or law that's operating here. And then a second one, yeah, that's you gotta be able to, you gotta be able to justify the massive expenditure that is war exactly. in the face of not providing for your people 100 you know, like, exactly yeah, exactly like no one ever asks they'll ask how you how will you pay for it when you talk about uh medicare for all or free college tuition yeah no one has ever asked how you would pay for a war and we pay for it at the ass. Yeah, cold war levels of of military spending and there's no uh enemy in sight right and then so on the and then an opposite force i think working in the other direction is obviously the way that technology especially to do with war and weaponry is like removing the necessity of putting troops on the ground, of putting us in like directly in harm's way. And uh, instead it's, and it doesn't even require us to like develop that sort of uh, spectacle of invasion and, and, and war on the ground like it did in the Gulf War. We don't need to see, in fact, we don't want to see the bombs and the guns. In fact, one of the, the most uh, like pressing issues now, I think is like Julian Assange is being basically they're they're gonna try to kill this guy for demonstrating the United States uh, committing war crimes, you know, like releasing footage of uh, some guys in a helicopter chuckling while they just like gun down eighteen people. Um, so we don't need that anymore. So they have to frame this uh, this like the 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 conflicts that they have to get us into as sort of, being uh, personified, it's like they're they're personified by the leaders, right? By by individuals, and so the war is still necessary on the one hand, but we don't need to be doing it like with feet on the ground. On the other hand, 
And I think that that's sort of, you know, that's what the, the kind of Pax Americana has become now is this crazy thing where everything has moved like everything else into this realm of the symbolic, you know, and in this weird. And the, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. And this, because I was going to say the symbolic is the most important part. Right. Because the, uh, like because the simple lines of this is an unequivocal fascist and we are not are never going to be there again right, right. Uh, and so it's all going to be some way of 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 presenting that this is some sort of righteous effort that we need to engage in and Iran and whatnot is a great example because we were nearly there uh one thing that we one literal bullet that we dodged with Trump is this fool is so, I mean, I don't want to jinx it. He's still the president for a little while <laughs> longer. But this fool has obviously shown a propensity to do whatever he wants to do. And if he had, you know, taken it far enough to actually start some sort of conflict, he could have. Uh, but I think we were saved by how terrified he is of doing anything right. realistically, but certainly of the notion of, having to harbor any sort of criticism for right. it. So. And one of the things about Trump's years is that uh, whatever else you can say about him, one of the things that's defined it has been a relative lack of involvement in, uh, or even like they haven't even talked that much about uh, like conflict, except for when he beat the drums a bit with North Korea, or when he, like you said, when he did that targeted assassination of yeah. um, the closest Suleimani. Was, yes, and again, but Suleimani fits the mold, doesn't he? Because it's like they've they've turned it into a thing. So w basically, what they need to do now is they need to find enemies who aren't states. They need to find enemies who are individuals, and they need to make these individuals uniquely evil, and they need to make these the killing of these individuals uh, like, a, like a matter of good and evil and not political expediency. And one of the things that they have to do is they have to find individuals who are somehow like a, a threat to us that, that can only be dealt with extrajudicially, right? It's that's why yeah. that's I think that since the war on terrorism, as it's called, right, it's it's created this sense that these people are they have no respect for the law. They're not operating within the law. They're not operating within any sort of international norms. They don't even acknowledge them. And so for us to respond to these people, we need to respond extrajudicially. And we also need to respond outside of the international conventions and norms. And so. They also, in some ways, need to operate outside of the symbolic order. They have to create this little outside of the symbolic order, and we have to make these people legitimate targets somehow, Because, and we have to make our illegitimate means for dealing with them somehow legitimate by making the whole entire process like exists somehow outside of the symbolic order of like Pax Americana, you know what I mean, of like an American peace yeah. and, and international law and the international order. And I feel like what that says that's I feel like you can get some insights and make some educated guesses about the future based on that because if we took like you know Osama bin Laden's killing as like maybe the first major version of that and then like even Trump who has zero strategy has zero like project or plan he just like does things off the fucking cuff and his uh, his way the thing that he chose to do I don't think it's an accident that without him even having to strategize it 
you know, he went and just like fucking shot a missile at this one guy and fucking blew him up because that was the only way that we can wage war now. And I feel like that that's telling. It was an aggressive, ill-advised move on a chessboard. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's going to result. Typically what happens is, oh, well, then they'll take that piece and then you take the other piece and they take this. And it accelerates a checkmate where one didn't need to be there. Right, right. And it was critically, I think, missing so much of the other things that we've talked about here. He didn't have the big production, the PR campaign and whatnot. Uh, but Joe Biden will. And Hillary Clinton absolutely would have. Mm, and that's yeah. what's dangerous is that I don't know what motivation they might have for engaging in one of these conflicts. Uh, I could see someone like Hillary Clinton being influenced by a uh, outside group like uh, like the MEK or something like that, like the same way that like Ahmed Chalabi influenced uh, right, right. George W. Bush and whatnot. Uh, but whatever the reason might end up becoming, I'm confident in their ability to sell the war. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and that's what's frightening. But it's that. Here's the thing, though. Let me yeah. let me drop this on you, because like, here's the thing, right? Because <clears throat> I think that with everything we talked about, you can kind of gather enough to make like a little bit of a like a guess as to what it would look like. What kind of what kind of conflict what might be coming? First of all, it's important to remember that the people who, the architects of the invasion of Iraq in 2003 are now on the side of these establishment Democrats. They're going to be involved in, if not actually members of Biden's administration. Okay. And so I think also, but like all the things we talked about, right? So I think by definition, the next target for US uh, like aggression is probably going to be number one, not a real threat. Not someone who's a real threat, like Soleimani wasn't, and Bin Laden really wasn't either by the time they actually got to him, right? 11 years after the fact. Because, I mean, they can't fight. They can't fight. They can't be a real threat because, first of all, we don't have very many. And the ones that we do, we, we can't really take on. You know, it would, yeah. it, would, it would be too destabilizing. Which is one of the reasons that we didn't fight Iraq in 1990. And right. the reason that we don't fight Iran right now right, right, is right. because they had actual armies and we don't really have an interest in engaging in a violent uh, war that isn't a unilateral slaughtering. Right, That's right, the right. type of thing that we engage no in now. Vietnams. And we didn't invade in Iraq until we had 10 years of sanctions and bombings weakening that country into something that could be rolled over right, exactly. with a shock exactly, and awkward. Exactly. Exactly. But you were saying. Yeah, and like they're going <laughs> to. So, yes, it will be a meaningless Yeah, enemy. so number one, it yeah, not be. a real threat. Number two, they'll be fighting with like uh, some sort of outdated weaponry and like, you know, th- because it'll be that, that it's that's kind of like a requisite for them to have that moral degradation associated with them so i think like kalashnikovs or something like that or like homemade bombs ieds and stuff like that right not not our kind of morally superior uh accurate high-tech weapons and stuff um i think number three they're not likely to take the shape of any kind of like military force they're probably not even going to have any kind of like state association because i think that they've got to be outside of the symbol the symbolic order of international relations right they've got to be extrajudicially dealt with because they have to be extrajudicial to begin with, right? And yeah. You, what? Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, yeah. We weren't fighting Afghanistan 
for 10 years we're fighting al-qaeda right exactly you know? and, and <laughs> the beginning even years, just the taliban know? or whatever as like and we yeah, had yeah. to we had to promote the idea first that they were like an illegitimate leadership of the country to begin with so and i think also that it's going to be it, it, where it'll take place will probably be somewhere um, for lack of a better word, remote, um, somewhere that we maybe don't know that much about, which is what makes me think it might be somewhere, it, uh, maybe not even in the Middle East, like it might be in Africa. I'm not saying that Africa is remote. I'm not trying to promote the idea that Africa is somehow like, like less important or less involved in the rest of the world. But I mean, that it's got to like, they've got to mobilize that view, that prejudice, that bias, you know, that, that sort of like Western bias. It's got to be somewhere that seems like uh, a hinterland of the symbolic order, you know what I mean? Maybe even not, and like I said, not to do with a particular state. And it's got to be somewhere like lawless, you know? It'll be somewhere in the middle, like uh, Eurasia, one of the former Soviet bloc countries or something like that. And I think that, again, like, they've got to, whoever it is that we're targeting has got to be, like, easily uncoupled from any, like, really strong state identity or, like, even like an ethnic identity that we appreciate as being legitimate, you know, because I think that the the point being that it's got to be someone who's outside of uh, like the, what we consider legitimate, you know, it's Mm got to be, they've got to be illegitimate people. They've got to be like, because if they're not illegitimate people, they're not really human. I mean, they're, they are human. If they're not illegitimate, then they're, they're like normal people and you can't go around just like killing normal people. Whereas like we can go around killing people who aren't human. You know what I mean? That, and that's what we do. And so I'm wondering, like, what do you think? Like, what, the, the thing that scares me and I want to know what you think is like, so would you would you hazard any guesses as to like where where Biden might target and like what kind of means he might use like what do you think because it worries me i'm genuinely worried Uh, i still think it's going to be the middle east it's less like uh the the oil reserves are less and less important thankfully hopefully uh as the rest of the world if not us is moving away from fossil fuels as much as possible but uh it's just going to be an area that's rife with conflict because of what we've done to it over the last mm. several decades. Uh, but also, Israel's not going away. Yeah. And the fact that they're o- occupying more and more of the Middle East, and absolutely no one agrees with this except for the United States, mm. this conflict is not going away. They're probably not going to ease up or give any land back to the Palestinians. And they're probably going to end up in many more conflicts, and we're going to have to take sides on there. And I would sooner believe that uh, Joe Biden would abdicate the presidency to Ralph Nader himself (laughs) before I believe that the United States will not support Israel in a military conflict because we already do and we already have been. And you just can't justify some of the things that they've done and continue to do. But... Look at your own country for how much uh, influence right, that right. Uh, they can have and forget about here. You know, like right now, Democrats are about to punt the control of the Senate for many reasons, but not least of which is because they won't fully support Reverend Warnock, who has an, a chance to beat Kelly Leffler, the wealthiest person in the United States government, uh but they won't throw their support behind him because he equated Palestine to apartheid. Um, right, right. 
So your money yeah, is on so, the Middle East, so, something to do with Israel. Yeah, yeah. My money's on the Middle East. What my money is not on is what we should be doing. Uh, like, I don't think the army shouldn't exist. Like, uh, military shouldn't exist. It's just that we have this thing called the Army Corps of Engineers that has built a lot of the important stuff in this country. Mm. Bridges, dams, uh, you know, stuff like, I mean, there's too many dams, but like, you know, they, they build things in this country, you know? Uh, and I feel like the army should mostly be the Army Corps of Engineers. But if you ask a general, you ask the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff right now under Trump, and you ask anyone high-ranking in the military, what is the most important threat to the United States, to global conflict and peace, it's climate change. Yeah. And they're not Greenpeace activists that are saying this. The heads of the military for a long time, for over a decade now, have been saying that climate change is a real threat to the safety of not only the United States, but to the notion of peace worldwide. Right. As resources become more scarce, it's going to cause more conflict. And this is just a reality we're going to have to deal with. So I think that those are the two fronts that conflict is going to be fought over. It's going to be fought over the fact that we will support Israel no matter what they do and climate change uh, causing pressures on everyone around the world and there not being systems in place for us to alleviate those pressures. Uh, and instead, yeah, even there, there are systems that make them, them worse. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Then we make them worse. And so that's what I think mm. is uh, lighting our future. Well, yeah. I mean, I like to I like to end on a depressing note. So I guess that yeah. maybe that's a good place. <laughs> yeah. Or you know, there's always the possibility. Here's the wild card. I'll throw it in right before we finish. China. Do it. China. Yeah. <laughs> China. China. <laughs> what are you saying? That China will cause more conflict? No, I mean, or will I, force I our hand say, in alleviating it. I would say that like uh, China has investments in lots of places that we've neglected and that are going to be hot spots of uh, fighting over natural resources, like in Africa. I mean, they've developed mm -hmm. a lot of like uh, like um, South Saharan Africa. A lot of the development projects and money going into it is Chinese money, Chinese companies developing those places. Uh, and I'm not surprised. I mean, they, they're, uh, and, and all of the, the tensions in the South China Sea, I wouldn't, uh, I mean, that, that's where my money is, is something indirect. There's another country that they, they have a lot of investment in, too. The United States. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lights up the sky, can't help but wonder why you're so far away. Someone else's land Life can be so strange I wish we never had to choose To be the win or lose We could find a way We could find a way But I won't turn my back again Turn my back again. on around the face So hold